I would like to have you all turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 11. I want to deal specifically this morning with verses 13 through 24. Romans chapter 11. We are in the midst of an extended study in the book of Romans. Please draw your attention to verse 13. Now I am speaking to you Gentiles. It ought to really strike us. Sometimes we read the Word of God and I think we forget that God means to speak to us. He speaks specifically to you and I. You can see that purpose. I'm speaking to you Gentiles inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. Now this is the Apostle Paul. He's the one speaking. He's the one who dictated to a man named Tertius the book of Romans. He says, I magnify my ministry in order to somehow, in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. And you remember, God has a purpose. God began His work primarily in Israel. Christ came and Israel for the most part rejected Christ. And in that rejection, God turned to the nations. And by so doing, His desire is to make the Jews jealous. Paul is falling in with that purpose. He seeks to make them jealous. Not to stir up sin in them, but in order that some of them might be saved. Verse 15, For if there... Now, he's speaking about the Jews. If the Jews' rejection means the reconciliation of the world, and I would just have you stop right there, a lot of times we get hung up on what the world means in Scripture. Now, obviously the word means different things in different places, and you have to look at the context to understand how it's meant. But I want you to understand clearly here, it does not mean every single person without distinction. The term world does not always mean every single individual in the world. Here, it specifically means the Gentiles, if their rejection, the Jews' Gentiles, it means the reconciliation of the world. In other words, outside of the Jewish realm. Not every single individual, but the Gentiles at large. Now, if the Jews' rejection means the reconciliation of the world, or the Gentiles, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? 
In other words, if the vast majority of the Jews have rejected Jesus Christ, and indeed they have, right there the last four verses of Romans 9, you see they've stumbled over the stumbling stone. That is Christ. The Gentiles, they were achieving righteousness. The Jews were seeking a law. They were not seeking Christ. And so they stumbled. And what Paul is saying is, after they've stumbled, after they've been rejected, so that the world might be reconciled, what happens now if the Jews turn to God? What if they accept their Messiah? What does that mean but life from the dead? Verse 16, if the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. Now catch this. What he's saying is, Israel can be considered like this great, vast lump of dough. And if a little bit is broken off, the first fruits, if it is holy, the whole thing becomes holy. The whole nation is holy. If the first fruits, what's the first fruits? Well, we could go all the way back to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. Their first fruits. There was a remnant in the days of Elijah that you see earlier in Romans 11. Also, Paul says, likewise, in his day, there's only a remnant. The first fruits, if they be holy, them being holy makes the whole nation holy. Now, not in the way that you might think. Not in the way that it makes the whole deal righteous. It makes it holy in a way that it's separated. Much like something like you'd find in 1 Corinthians 7 where the unbelieving spouse is made holy by the believing spouse. It means it, it makes them separated. And Paul's going to be very clear in verse 17. He doesn't mean that they're all righteous when he says they're holy. He just means they're separated. For God has separated them from a, for a very special purpose. And the very fact that He is saving a remnant of them, and them being holy, sanctifies the whole. The very fact God started with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and this whole nation flowed out of them makes them special in a certain way. Now He changes His imagery. The second half of 16, He goes now to say this. If the root is holy, so are the branches. I mean, if that all the way at the bottom, if at the very beginnings, the root, we might say Abraham and Isaac and Jacob right from the very beginnings all the way up. It, it, that connection there makes the branches holy. But now in verse 17, he wants you to see very clearly, that doesn't mean they're all righteous. It means they have a special place, yes. They had special provision, yes. They had special blessing, yes. God did give them the oracles of God. He gave them the prophets. He gave them many advantages. But look, verse 17 shows us that even though the branches are holy, but if some of the branches were broken off, even though they were holy branches, there were some, in fact, Paul would lead us to believe many branches broken off. In fact, only a remnant were saved. The rest were hardened. We saw that earlier. Only the remnant is still in the tree. All the rest have been broken off. And if some of the branches were broken off, and you, Gentiles, 
Although a wild olive shoot, you see, we come from another tree, folks. We're a wild olive tree. If we come from that tree and we were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it's not you who support the root. Look, the promises weren't given to the Gentiles specifically and initially. They were given to Abraham. Weren't, wasn't that the Abrahamic covenant? The promises to him? And it's through him. It's through that root that we are supported. It's through the promises made to him. It's through the Christ at the root of those promises that we are supported. So don't be arrogant towards them. Verse 19, you will say branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. That's how anybody that gets broken off gets broken off. Unbelief. They did not trust Jesus Christ. But you, Gentiles, you stand fast through faith. That's why you've been grafted in there. So do not become proud. Stand in awe. Now the ESV is the only one that uses the word awe. It's the word fear. Be afraid. Be frightened. Be alarmed. Now you know, we, we sang the song. Fear not, for I am with you. It's amazing. <coughs> Excuse me. Many times in the Scriptures, we're told not to fear. But then in other places, we're told to fear. I mean, what it seems like, folks, is God says, fear Him. Don't fear other things. Fear not the other things, but fear Me. Verse 21, for if God, this is the reason to fear, for if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will He spare you. He didn't spare them because of unbelief. And He's saying to the Gentiles, if He didn't spare them for their unbelief, He won't spare you if you're found in unbelief. Verse 22, note then, consider, behold the kindness, behold the severity of God. Severity? Or those who have fallen. But God's kindness to you. Provided you continue in His kindness. Otherwise you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted, contrary to nature... It's not even natural, folks, that you guys should be in this tree. Into this cultivated olive tree. How much more will these, the natural branches, the branches that were always in this tree until they were broken off, how much more will they be grafted back into their own tree? <clears throat> their own olive tree. Now, kind of revert back. Verse 13. I am speaking to you Gentiles. And that's what I'm doing today. I'm speaking to you Gentiles. 
You know what? Paul's under the inspiration of God Almighty. He specifically has a word for Gentile Christians. That's you. So, listen. This is for us. Some of you may not be familiar with imperative verbs. Let me be real clear about something. Paul does not just give us a bunch of facts here in this section of Scripture. He does give us some facts, but he does more. He also throws a handful of imperative verbs. Imperative means that you have a specific obligation and responsibility to do what you are being told to do. It means commandment. It's got the idea that when God gives you an imperative in His Word, it is imperative that you pay attention and do what He tells you to do. Your own good, your own welfare, your own safety depends upon it. What is it that He tells us Gentiles to do? These aren't all the imperatives here. There's a handful of them. I'm going to give you four that I distinctly want you to take note of. Romans 11, verse 18. Cast your eyes there. What are the first four words? Do not be arrogant. The word can be boast. Don't boast. Don't be arrogant. Move forward to verse 20. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. Now notice these four words. Five words. So do not become proud. Literally haughty, conceited, high-minded. And right after that, we get another imperative. Right on the heels. Stand in awe. It's it's one word in the original. It's this word. It's a command. Fear. You're saying, God's telling us Christians to fear? That's exactly what He's doing. He's telling Gentile Christians, be afraid. He's commanding it. And then, verse 22. Note. It's it's a word that means look, behold, consider then the kindness and severity of God. Now notice that sequence. Don't be arrogant. Don't be proud. Two direct commands to put away pride. But Paul goes further. You see, he knows there's an antidote to pride. The antidote to pride is fear. And the object of this fear is God Himself. And the particular aspect of God that is meant to produce the fear that kills pride is God's kindness and severity. Do you all see this? God's kindness and severity has a tendency to produce a certain type of fear in each one of us. A type of fear that by its very nature kills pride. Now does that strike some of you as odd? Does it surprise some of you that fear would be the cure for pride? It probably does. We just recently, not long ago, had a local guy that visited. And during the lunch out here, we got talking. And he told me, you know, it's, I think he was telling me about somebody that he knew was, was professing to be saved. 
And it was out of fear of hell that they came. And the guy was saying, no, that's, that's no good. You see, what he wanted was a hatred for sin. Now, we know that's good, right? Hatred for sin is good. If you are weary, if you are heavy laden, if you're just burdened by your sin, Christ has come. I mean, maybe, maybe it sounds better to say, well, I came to Christ because I, I just desired Him. There was beauty. And that's good. If, if you desire, if you're thirsty, come to Him and drink. We find that type of thing as well. We could just say, well, I desired to come. That's obviously there too. Let so whosoever will. But, listen to me. I, t- I told him, but your ideas about fear of hell, I think you need to change. I don't think you want to, you want to look and say that because somebody came to Christ, and they came out of fear. That, that, well, they're probably not saved. Don't think that that's a bad testimony. Why? Because fear often drives men to Christ. And I'll tell you this, whatever it is that drives a man to Christ, if he comes to Him and casts himself in His arms, it's good. Jesus Christ Himself said, I will warn you whom to fear. Fear Him who after He is killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear Him. Think about it, folks. What's the one thing that keeps a man or a woman away from Christ? I'll tell you what it is. It's pride. That is what stands in the way. A man's self-righteousness. A man trusting in his own abilities. A man that is... You know what? A man that's full of self-trust. Full of a high view of himself. That's where Ryan was. He became the Pharisee. But you know what? You may not go around in the Pharisee's robe. But isn't it amazing how even the prostitutes off this street are Pharisees? Because they can always think of somebody that is worse than themselves. They can always think of something that they believe is good about themselves. And I'll tell you this, no man comes to Christ until he is broken. And what we find Paul saying in Romans 11 is that God uses fear precisely to break pride. And that's true whether a man is first coming to Christ. That's true in the Christian life. Now, I know God may use other things than fear to bring someone. But He definitely uses it. And you know what was interesting? is the very guy that was telling me this, I got to pinning down how he came to Christ and he admitted it was out of fear of hell. Fear plays a very important part in humbling man's pride. We're going to come back to that in just a second. First, let's step back and take a broader look at the scenery here. Yes, Paul tells us to be afraid in verse 20, but notice the context in which he does so. It's the context of a tree. Look halfway through verse 16. We start getting hit with tree language. 
If the root is holy, so are the branches. So we have a root, we have branches. Then we move forward a little bit to the last two words of verse 17. You can look there. We find these two words. Olive tree. Paul keeps up this olive tree imagery all the way to the end of verse 24. So, here's the thing. What's he talking about? What is the olive tree? Well, I believe he's speaking about Israel. Not just Israel in general, but the true Israel. The phys- not the physical only, but that which is spiritual Israel. I want to prove it to you. I have five observations that I want to make about this. First, first one real quick. We find Israel representative as an olive tree by both Jeremiah and Hosea in the Old Testament. You say, well, what's the significance of that? Well, just this. Paul has quoted from the Old Testament at least 26 times in chapters 9, 10, and 11. You know why? He's wanting to show that what's happening to the Jews is exactly in accord with the Old Testament. And so he's drawing, 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 proving that his Gospel's not some new thing. It's exactly what God said in the Old Testament. And so for Paul to use Old Testament figures from Jeremiah and Hosea would not at all be surprising. Jeremiah, Israel's called the green olive tree, beautiful with good fruit. Hosea says that Israel's beauty shall be like the olive. I realize that by itself is not absolutely and totally convincing. But let's move forward. The second thing. Notice the last four words of verse 24. Their own olive tree. Well, who's he talking about? Who does this olive tree belong to that Paul would say, their own olive tree? He's talking about Israel. They're the natural branches. They're the ones who will be grafted back into their own olive tree if they don't continue in their own belief. Now look, here's the thing that I want you to understand. Paul actually calls this tree Israel's own olive tree. It's their tree. And even when they're broken off because of unbelief, it's still their tree. They're the natural branches of this tree. And even though the Gentiles have been grafted into this tree, nowhere in in any of this section does He call this tree the Gentile tree or our tree. It's always and only the Jews' tree. Look, salvation is of who? It's of the Jews. And the only way to be saved is to be grafted into their tree. I hope you get that. So I hope you can see the olive tree is materializing here before your eyes. Clearly representative of Israel. Third, notice this. The description given of this olive tree in verse 24. Paul calls it a cultivated olive tree. Now that's set over and against the wild olive tree that the Gentiles come from. Cultivated means that it's what? But it's received special attention. It's been taken care of. Something cultivated you find in the garden. Not way out in the wilderness. That's where the wild olive tree is. Clearly the cultivated olive tree is a people of God's special attention. Who would that be? Deuteronomy 32, we find the Lord's portion is His people. Jacob. His allotted heritage. He found him in his desert land in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him. He cared for him. 
He tended him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. Israel's that cultivated olive tree. Fourth, I want to take you even further. This tree isn't just Israel. As I've already said, it's true Israel. Notice verse 19. Then you will say. Find that in verse 19. Then you will say. Branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. Now look, here's the thing about this tree. Only ones who stay in the tree are the ones who stay there by what? How do you stay in the tree? By faith. You're broken off because of unbelief. The Gentiles stand fast through faith. All in this tree have come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. All in this tree put all their confidence for being saved in Christ alone. The people in this olive tree are not people who are looking for some other way to God. They're not, the pe- they're not walking around saying, well, I think I need to go try the Pope. I need to try Mary. I try- need to try Muhammad. I, th- I think Hinduism's got something to offer. Nobody in that tree is doing that. Because they stand there. They're grafted in by faith in Jesus Christ. It means all their confidence is there. Is that not what the Bible says? The true circumcision in Philippians 3.3 are what? Those who put their total confidence in Jesus Christ. They glory in Him. They put no confidence in the flesh. That's the true circumcision. That's true Israel. And that's what you've got in the tree. Those who are there by faith. Fifth, the meaning of this olive tree, I think, becomes apparent too when you consider the root. Now, look, in verse 16, if the root is holy, so are the branches. And we find that whatever the root is, it supports and nourishes the branches. Now, I've kind of hinted at this already, but I really believe what is at the root is really the Abrahamic covenant. I really believe that the forefathers... I mean, all you got to do is glance over in verse 28. You see, the Jews are beloved as a people. This holy people. They're beloved for the sake of the forefathers. In other words, the forefathers are the root from which the special love of God is tied. Back in Romans 9.5, Paul also made allusion to the, the connection here. It's Israelites that the patriarchs belong to. The root belongs to these branches. Remember this. Even when a Jew is unbelieving, it's still their tree. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are still their heritage. Christ even calls them still the children or the sons of the kingdom. Even though many come from the east and the west and they get cast out or they're broken off. But it's still their heritage. Look, here's the thing. If you're grafted into this tree, you're connected with the root. You're connected with Abraham. Is that critical? You better believe it. Galatians 3.29 If you're Christ, then you're Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to promise. Galatians 3.7 Know then that it is those of faith. Now how do you get in the tree? Faith. Unbelief, you're chopped off. 
It's by faith you get in the tree, but it's also by faith, Galatians 3, 7 says, that you become a son of Abraham. You see, the connection with Abraham is faith. You get in the tree by faith. You become connected to these promises that were given to Abraham, all fulfilled in Christ. Well, anyways, there's my take on the olive tree. Now, what we got to do is say, okay, well, wait. You got all this olive tree, clearly, all those in it. It's faith. It's the Jews' own tree. I mean, we can look at that and we can see that. It's the Jewish tree. But God always had mind to the true Jew, the Jew that's one inwardly, not just outwardly, and the true circumcision, not made in the flesh with hands, but that circumcision which is of the heart. Made by Christ. That's always been the issue. Well, what's the connection here? Okay, we have fear God. Look at His severity. Don't be proud. You've got these, these commandments, these imperatives coming at us. What's the connection now with this tree? How do they fit together? Well, let's see. Look at verse 19. Then you will say, Branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Verse 20. That is true. Okay, stop right there. I want you to really feel what Paul's saying here. Paul is predicting what Gentiles might be tempted to say. And what I want to ask you is, why would they ever be tempted to say such a thing? Why would they ever be tempted to say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in? Well, because of what Paul's already said. Right? Verse 15. Paul gives us every reason to think such a thing. He pointed out that the rejection of the Jews means what? The reconciliation of the Gentiles. The statement leads Gentiles like us to say, you know what happened? Because this is exactly what Paul's saying. They were broken off. Not, not, yes, because of their unbelief, they were broken off. But God with purpose is configuring redemptive history in a way that many of the Jews would perish. Yes, because of their unbelief. Yes, it was their fault. Yes, their damnation is their own responsibility. But God structured this thing in a way that it was necessary for the Jews to be broken off in order that the Gentiles might be grafted in. And He says that. Their rejection is the reconciliation of the world. And so the Gentile might... He's anticipating the Gentiles sitting back and saying, whoa, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. What does Paul say? Nope, you've got it all wrong. God would never do that. That's not what He says. You see those first words right there at the beginning of verse 20? That is true. My Gentile brothers and sisters, I want something to sink in. You need to realize something. God broke men and women off of this olive for you to make room for you do you realize what this is saying many 
people have perished that you might live. Men and women have been damned so that you might not be. That's what this is saying. I mean, this... You know, there is a text in Isaiah's prophecy that ought to stun us. Isaiah 43. Just just grasp this. Verses 4 and 5. Because you are precious in my eyes. This is God speaking to you. And you're going to see clearly in just a second, He's speaking to Gentiles. God is saying to you, Christian Gentile, because you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you, I give men in return for you. I give men for you. You have come at a price. Oh, a greater price yet even than just this. But you have been redeemed and added to this olive tree at a price. I have given men for you. I have given peoples in exchange for your life. You say, how do we know He's talking about the Gentile? Fear not. I am with you. I will bring... He's speaking about the true Israel here. I will bring your offspring from the east And from the west I will gather you. And this is a reflection of exactly what Jesus Christ said in Matthew 8. They will come from the east and from the west. The Gentiles. And they will sit down connected with the root. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob at that table. While many of the children of the kingdom are going to be cast into outer darkness. Gentile Christian, this ought to stagger us. God, it was for their unbelief. There's no question about it. But God is giving men in return for you. God has attached you to the root at great cost. Branches have been broken off so that you might be grafted in. What has God done? But right at this point, Paul wants us Gentiles to keep our feet on the ground. He says, look. Look at the branches that God broke off out of the olive tree. He broke them off for this reason. He broke them off because of their unbelief. They stumbled over the rock of offense. They stumbled over Christ. And you need to take a good look at that. And you need to be afraid. Because if you're a believer and you've been grafted into this olive tree, it is not an indication of your superiority. Don't you dare start thinking that because by God's grace, He put away a whole people so that you might be grafted in, that somehow that's because you're superior. And you see, if you come to that place... You're exactly where the Jews were to start. They thought themselves a superior people. And what God's showing all the way through it is, He's working it out in a way that it humbles all of us. When the Jew is lifted up with pride, He 
just practically pushes the whole nation, but a remnant into hardness. They deserve it. It's their own doing. It's their own unbelief. They're guilty. And yet the Scripture says, God has hardened them. You're not better than the Jews who were broken off out of that olive tree. They were Jews. Listen, this is much like we could imagine it. Imagine a man. He's got a beloved son. The man looks to his son. He loves him. He cherishes him. He expects the son to carry on the business. To carry on the family name. He expects the son to receive the fullness of inheritance. But what happens? The son insults the father. The son is rebellious. The son turns out to be such that he goes against and lives against and is contrary to his father's will. And the father is watching all this happen. But here's the thing about the father. He's a good man. He's a righteous man. He's a just man. And he sees this. And he realizes this is going against what he desires. He realizes that this son is not fulfilling the hopes and the expectations. You know what this father does? He cuts that son off. He disinherits him. He puts him out of the family. And what Paul is saying here, what Paul is pleading for, is look, if a man would do that to his natural born son, and then if that man were to turn and say, now I am going to make one of my servants my adopted son, to him I am now going to inherit the whole fullness. To him I am going to bequeath my name, the business, the whole family title. What he's saying is, if God would do that to his own natural son, how much more would he do it to his servant? if the servant ended up going off in the direction of disapproval, how much more likely would the father throw away that disapproved servant if he would do it to the same to the son? And what he's saying to us is, therefore, you need to be humble. Gentile, you're not. You've come in from the outside. Folks, if God did not spare, you know why you should fear? You should fear this. Because God did not spare the natural branches. Spare them from what? It's right at this point, verse 22 comes in. This is Paul, what Paul wants us to see. This is what he wants us to tremble at. The Jews have not been spared what? The severity of God. Folks, do those three words do anything to you? Severity. 
God. Severity. You know what he's saying? If you get broken off that tree, it's severe. Severe. They've rejected Christ. Man is responsible for his own damnation and God is severe with them. Let me ask you this. How severe? How severe is it to be broken off the tree? You know what Jesus Christ said? If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. You know what? The branches are gathered. They're thrown into the fire. And they are burned. You tell me. Does being burned sound insignificant to you? Does it sound light? Does it sound soft? Does it sound mild? Can our minds even conceive of something more severe than being burned? Severity. It means rigorous, unsparing, exact judgment. We are talking about scathing, unbending, unrelenting intensity of God's wrath. Listen, I know it is not popular today for people to proclaim a gospel with fear in it. It's not the popular gospel of the day. But fear is a part of the gospel that you find in the New Testament. Revelation 14.10, the unbeliever will drink the wine of God's wrath. To be broken out of the olive tree is to drink the wine of God's wrath. Poured. And here's the severity. Poured. Full strength. Can we stand before the full strength of God's wrath? That's severe. Full strength into the cup of his anger, and this man, this broken off branch, will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. In Revelation 19.15, we have a picture of Jesus Christ. He is called the Word of God. He's wearing a garment that has been dipped in blood. And it says He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. Who can imagine the fury of the wrath of God Almighty? Listen to me! Severe! doesn't mean they're being punished beyond what they deserve. It means that when men and women are punished for exactly what they do deserve, it is severe. Because it is a severe matter to sin against the Almighty. You know what it's saying? If God finds you unbelieving, 
you too will be broken off out of this tree. If you do not continue in the kindness of God, if you do not continue in the faith, you too, if God did not spare His own people, Israel, the own natural branches of that tree, when He found unbelief, when He found them reject Christ, what will He do to you if you turn from Christ? What will He do? You should be afraid. We should fear. You say, wait, wait, wait. This doesn't sound right. I mean, we've, we've heard other things in the Bible. We've heard, I'm Christ the solid rock I stand. We hear that, that if we're standing on Him, we can't be shaken. We've, we've heard somewhere just recently in Romans 8, that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. What are you talking about if we turn away? Listen. If your Calvinism has led you to disregard the warnings of Scripture, then I warn you, you better be very afraid. Listen. Yes. Yes. The salvation of God is unshakable. Yes. But that doesn't mean we can discount the warnings. Why? Because Paul himself said, there are those who make shipwreck of the faith. And you know what? It's not just some abstract idea. You know what he says? Hymenaeus and Alexander. Shipwreck of the faith. Do you know what that means? There are people with names just like you who lived in their day, attended a church just like this. And they made shipwreck of the faith. Listen, there is no contradiction between telling you on the one hand, if you flee to Christ, he gives you everlasting life. And it is everlasting. You can't lose it. Yes, if you go to Him. Those He justifies, He every single time glorifies. No question about it. If God saves you, you are well saved. But here's the problem. This church, just like other churches. Some of you are God's children. Some of you are in the olive tree. Some of you are hypocrites. You're pretenders. You're unregenerate churchgoers. I'll tell you this. It's the very fear of God that God uses in fact to keep you that are true in the tree. See, does the Bible teach that? You better believe it does. The very tenet of the new covenant found back in Jeremiah 32 and verse 40. Do you know what we're told? We are told that we are made to stay through something God does. Listen to what he says. I will make 
with them an everlasting covenant. There is the everlasting covenant that God makes with us. He says, I'll not turn away from doing good to them. I will put the fear of Me in their hearts. Why? That they might not turn from Me. You know what? You want to know where pride comes from? People looking a whole lot at themselves. And Paul says, get Gentile Christians, get your eyes off yourself lest you think you're in that tree for any goodness in you, for anything other than the grace of God. Get your eyes off yourself and look at the kindness and severity of God. Get your eyes on Him. Because when you fasten them there, it will fill you with a fear when you consider His severity and what it cost Him to be kind to you. What it cost the Son of God for God to be kind to you. There is a severity. And what it does when we see other people fall away, when we see the, when we see the perishing of the Jews, the fury of God Almighty poured out upon people who are natural branches. You know what the fear does? And listen, it's not a fear of man. He says, I'll put the fear of me in them. That's what Paul wants. He wants us to fear as we behold the kindness and the severity of God. God is the object of the fear. And you know what that fear does? It makes the true child of God hold all the tighter to Christ. It makes us crouch even deeper under His wing. It doesn't make us run away. That's not what this fear does. God gives this fear so that they don't depart from Me. Oh, folks, fear. This is not an idle threat. And you see what happens. The true child of God clings all the more tightly to Christ in light of such fear. In light of the thunders of God's wrath. (coughs) The pretender. The guy that just comes to church because that's where the crowd is. They just want to be hooked into the social events. The person that's just trying to soothe the conscience. The person that's looking for acceptance somewhere because they're kind of an outcast in society. The person that's just coming because a family member goes there. You know what happens when they hear about the severity of God? They just yawn. They don't really care. They're they're not concerned. They can just be casual about it. Once saved, always saved. I'm in there. I got baptized. Like Craig's boss. Like Ryan was when he was lost. You just kind of... You're playing the game. You're being doing your self-righteous little deal. You kind of appease the conscience. You're just cruising through. I'll tell you what, if that's your case, you ought to be afraid because you are in danger. Where, oh where, is Hymenaeus and Alexander in the place of hypocrites. And it's severe. It's not a walk in the park. 
You think you're going to stand before God on Judgment Day and you're just going to stiffen up and somehow bear this. It's severe for us to even get a glimpse of it. It just seems unbelievably severe. And I'll tell you this, you want to see the severity and the kindness of God? For God to be kind to anyone, the severity He poured out on the Jews is one thing. The severity He poured out on His Son is altogether another thing. The Scripture says, with severe crushing, with severe smiting, He literally put Christ in the vice of His wrath and squeezed His soul out to death. And I'll tell you that. If He had to do that to His own Son for the sake of other people's sins, what in the world will He do to you? A wild olive shoot if He should find you in the day of judgment without the blood of Christ upon you. If you should be found in the wilderness outside that cultivated tree in that day, you should fear. God would do that to His Son, if God would do that to Israel. Such severity. Oh, Gentile. What will He do to you if one day you get to the place where you say, that's it. I want my sin more than I want Christ. I'm out of here. I'm going back to the world. I'm going back to my sin. Christ isn't worth it. And you turn your back and you make shipwreck of the faith and you walk away. Oh, what will God do to you? Yes, fear is part of our gospel. And I'll tell you who to fear. Fear Him who after He has killed the body Versus you in the full strength of the fury of His wrath. Hell is fearsome. It is no mere slap on the wrist. It is severe. And I'm telling you what, folks. There is kindness with God. There is abundant kindness. That whole olive tree just reeks with the fragrance of kindness. If you will run, if in this fear, you will run to safety. There's only safety in one place. It's in the olive tree. The only way into the olive tree is by faith. Faith not just in anything. Faith in the Son of God. If you can believe that He took the severity of God in your place, there's a place for you, where the severity of God can never reach. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for them who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. You're dismissed.